0: Open, outspoken, it's ophthalmology off the grid, an honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. An overreaction to minor inconveniences, mistreatment of practice staff, an unwaveringly cold disposition. These are the red flags. As healthcare providers, what we want most is to help people to improve their vision and hopefully their quality of lives. However, although mostly few and far between, there are occasions when we must say no to patients who need care. Despite our hyper-focus on the eyes, we are, in essence, treating the entire patient, and that makes us responsible for their well-being and sometimes that means we must screen out patients not for ophthalmic reasons, but for psychosocial ones. Here today to help us dive into this topic is Dr. Parag Majmadar. With substantial experience performing refractive surgery, Dr. Majmadar is tuned into the process of identifying patients who may be predisposed to dissatisfaction. He'll weigh in on the subtle cues he looks for and the approach he takes when having to dismiss a patient. Coming up on Off The Grid.
1: Ophthalmology Off
0: The Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz and welcome back to another episode of Ophthalmology Off The Grid. Today I have the distinct pleasure of having a great conversation with my friend Parag Majmadar he is the president and chief medical officer of Chicago Cornea Consultants and an associate professor of ophthalmology at Rush University in Chicago. Uh, Parag and I have known each other for a number of years. We've always had great conversations. And every time I put myomycin C on the uh, cornea after PRK, I, I thank Parag uh, in my mind. So uh, Parag, thanks for coming on the show and uh, I'm excited to hear about your practice. And also we've got a, a really interesting topic uh, that we're going to unveil here in just a second.
1: Uh, My pleasure, Gary. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Parag, we had an email exchange. Um, There was a a group of us that were sort of emailing back and forth about, you know, some of the more challenging patients, shall we say. And you had a patient that you you described that really struck a nerve with me uh, because I I feel like I've met this patient in a number of various settings. And so the topic that we're going to discuss today essentially is when to say no. When do you say no to a patient who, for all the ophthalmic reasons, you should be saying yes, but for other reasons, you feel like you're not going to be able to make them happy. So as a preamble to that, um, or you know, as an intro, why don't you just give us a little bit of the background on your practice, and then give us a little bit of a, uh, the story about this patient in particular, and we'll just go from there.
1: Sure. Uh, I uh, have been in practice now for uh, 20 years uh, and at the same practice, Chicago Corny Consultants. Our group uh, has grown from two ophthalmologists when I joined back in 1998 now to uh, we're adding an, a fifth ophthalmologist and we have four optometrists. So we've grown to a fairly large organization. We specialize mostly in anterior segment type surgery. Initially it used to be all cornea refractive Uh, but we're adding uh, other comprehensive eye specialists. So we kind of uh, uh, focus our attention mostly on the front part of the eye. Uh, We have um, uh, three locations throughout uh, Chicagoland area, and we also have an academic affiliation with Rush University Medical Center, which is where I initially did my cornea fellowship, so I feel a a strong attachment to that institution, which has churned out some great ophthalmologists over the last 20 years that, that I've been there. And I'm happy to have had a part in that. You know, I, as I said, I've been practicing now for 20 years, so I can easily say that I'm on the back nine, uh, you know, of my career. And with that definitely comes wisdom and why, you know, knowledge is one thing. And I think wisdom is another thing. Uh, And certainly we have to earn both. uh, But with time, wisdom definitely comes and you get a sense of when things don't seem to add up. Uh, I started practice in 1998, and uh, at that time, you know, the LASIK boom was in full swing. You know, for example, we uh, felt that we were invincible. We could treat anybody, and I think as a broad generalization, we probably did, and we found out things like ectasia loomed uh, its ugly head, and, uh, you know, we kind of figured out kind of what you know, to look for, we, we've come up with really great screening tools and come up with a systematic approach, for example, to LASIK screening. And I think we've done a good job of that, especially over the last few years. And so now we don't kind of feel like we have to operate on everyone that comes through the door. And I think that's a valuable lesson, especially for younger ophthalmologists when they're coming out is that they don't have to operate on every single patient. There's this internal pressure that, you know, anybody who comes through the door, we have to make them extremely happy. And it sometimes takes a little bit of that wisdom to realize that, look, you know, even if I don't operate on this patient, that may be the best way to make this patient, you know, truly happy. And that surgery potentially might not be in the best interest of the patient. So as an example, what we were talking about, uh, sharing some different difficult cases that came in, uh, this is a a patient that I saw probably about two months ago, I want to say, she'd come in for a LASIK evaluation and off the top of my head, I remember her as a 51 or 52 year old uh, lady. and what struck me is that most of the time, I think I'm a fairly personable kind of guy. I walked in and I introduced myself. I'd never met her before. Um, and um, she would she made very little eye contact with me and that was kind of an initial red flag for me is that something doesn't seem right because she's not either she's upset about something. and so I kind of looked a little further. And I found that she had actually been to the office to see me before, yet I had never seen her because she had left without being seen. And when I questioned her about that, I said, you know, what happened that day? Was there some issue that, you know, we we can improve upon? Maybe there was something that that had gotten her upset. And I think that she had kind of felt like um, we had done too much testing and she kind of got really anxious and felt like this wasn't worth her time to be there and left. Um, And I just kind of got the sense from her talking after I had a chance to open open up with her a little bit that she seemed like a person who had a lot of other issues going on. And much has been made, you know, recently over the last four or five years about, you know, the psychosocial factors that are involved in LASIK satisfaction. Uh, we've had various different studies now that have kind of made association between poor outcomes and, and depression and suicide in patients who have know, these psychosocial factors. And I think that's kind of playing a a role a little bit. And of course, when I evaluated her past, you know, medical history and medication history and so on and so forth, there was certainly uh, a number of um, medications, psychotropic medication that the patient was on. And so I think these are kinds of these soft criteria You know, despite the fact that, you know, from a, from, for the most part, from a physical standpoint, physical characteristics of her eye and ocular surface and cornea, I thought she might be a potentially a good candidate. I think she was a relatively, you know, medium to moderately high myope, minus five or minus six. I thought she potentially could have, you know, a good outcome with refractive surgery, corneal based refractive surgery in terms of corneal thickness and curvature and everything else, but just something didn't quite add up. And some of that was her um, inability to sort of handle what I would consider minor, or most of us would probably consider minor sort of inconveniences being at a doctor's office. Um, and then given her other history about how, um, you know, various other systemic issues may impact on her sort of mental status and how, how she would respond to a potentially less than ideal outcome. And so these are the kinds of things that were going through on my mind when I examined her. And I felt that she, you know, despite being, as I said, a fairly good candidate, I thought there was something that just didn't quite make sense um, to her when, to her whole story. Right. And that was kind of the thing that kind of struck me. And I said, you know, what yes. would I have done 20 years ago? Well, I would have plowed through. I would have said, hey, let's do LASIK. I think we're going to do great. And and she might have done well. But we certainly have those cases that we've seen scattered throughout our our collective experiences where patients have done relatively well. We think from a, from a vision standpoint, but they complain of intractable, you know, dry eye or glare or halo or some kind of process that may be not related necessarily to their physical outcome, but more of an emotional or psychosocial outcome, which, which ruins their lives. And so we not only think about, you know, uh, ourselves and, Hey, I don't want to deal with this patient for the next, you know, how many years if she's not happy. But I also don't want the patient to have to unnecessarily go through a procedure that might make them less happy than they might otherwise be with their current situation, wearing glasses or contacts. Yeah.
0: Prague you, you've said so many interesting things. Um, and I feel like this is the tip of a very large iceberg as we unpack this. Um, the idea of I think just the the brief psychological history that we can gather, not only from walking in and the normal social cues, shaking a hand. I think I remember you telling me that she she wouldn't shake your hand or she doesn't do that, something like that. Well, yeah,
1: I, I remember saying that. I think it was something – I don't know if she was a germaphobe okay. or, or – there was some issue that it was just – she didn't make eye contact when I offered my hand. She didn't shake it, and it was sort of um, cold interaction. Yeah, I, I don't remember, you know, exactly the the situation in terms of whether she was a, a germaphobe. But I I always make it a point to, you know, do the sanitizer as soon as I walk in, and so I'm wiping my hands before I even you know offer a handshake. So so I think that there was some potential issue. But then again, these are little clues right. that you know should kind of trigger a response. And and my point in that email was that most of us. You know are so especially in our early part of our career we're so focused on hey let me look at her panic camera. let me look at her cornea let me look at her refractive I, I can do this i know i can give her uh, an outstanding you know physical relation you know, outcome but but what's the relationship to that with her psychosocial right. uh, interaction how they perceive that is 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 a big you know it's a big hurdle sometimes
0: yeah i mean you know patients are more than a cornea they're more than an eyeball and you know once you operate on them you really own them for a while if not in some ways indefinitely and you know I've had a number of patients where you know I just get the sense that they're they are asking for something what they're seeking in in a outcome from a surgery is not necessarily just improved vision but they're seeking a deeper answer they're potentially seeking happiness and they're in some ways, thinking that this is the thing that's going to make them happy, and when it doesn't, when they when even if they have a perfect outcome or a great outcome, or God forbid, they have a you know less than perfect outcome, um, in, in those situations, I think we have a we can be a little more sympathetic, or or we can at least understand why they would be up, upset. But when they when their regular life problems are still there after surgery. And it has not made them happy. There really is this sense of, um, you know, almost a greater sense of failure because they're trying so hard to achieve some level of happiness. And despite their expense and trying yet another thing, it hasn't delivered uh, on the goods. And so I really feel like looking at someone's med history, if they're on, you know, antidepressants, that's one thing. If they're on benzodiazepines, I personally feel like that is a, even a higher level red flag than, uh, you know, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. So the people who are having a hard time, and that's not to say people who are on these meds are are crazy and unreasonable. No, I, I'm all for you know medical therapy of these things, but it's a it's a it's a clue. It's one part of the picture, and it's something that we you know I don't think we're trained potentially um, as well as we could be, or maybe it's not as intentional in residency to talk about what patients you should screen out, not for ophthalmic reasons, but for psychosocial reasons. And, and that's why I feel like having this conversation can really clue people in. On, you know just some little softer, subtle hints. Um, patients like this, though, that are, that are very demanding, they only respect their own time. They, they, these are the patients who get mad at you for doing too much testing, and at the same time after surgery would be mad that not enough was done. <laughs> Don't
1: you agree with that? I, I agree 100. percent I, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of that happiness factor. I think that's a really important point, and I think we see that a lot in the plastic surgery uh, world, where p- patients are getting things done to their bodies in 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 the hopes that that's going to be a surrogate for making them happy. Right. And I think with, with eye surgery, I think that's probably partly uh, the situation as well. You know, and I think that it, it, when when you when you exactly hit the nail on the nail on the head is that when that there's something that's not quite up to their expectations that in in that to them equals I'm not happy and and it didn't fix my the rest of my life. That's kind of a very thing i I think that you know I think that we uh, surgeons kind of have to do certain things to kind of screen for these you know sort of intangible kinds of things when we're and I think that's really the kind of point of of your suggesting this this discussion because I think it's a great learning you know tip for for anyone out there, especially those coming out uh, and just starting their practices, that I think that most of the successful outcomes that we've had, and, and we've seen this hundreds of times, thousands of times, where we may not hit the nail on the head with a refractive lens exchange or a cataract surgery or even LASIK, but, you know, the patients are happy and we have that that, that concept of 20 happy. And I think a lot of that hinges on a great patient, physician-patient relationship. And, and that begins with a great physician patient interaction. And, and there has to be that level of trust. And sometimes, you know, you can't get that at the first visit. Obviously I didn't feel that there was enough of a bond with that first visit. Now if I felt like there was some, um, potential for future, I might've told the patient, you know, I think, Hey, you know, I see some dryness let's let's have you go on some different drops or some medications and then maybe let's have you come back and let's repeat some of these pictures. I just didn't feel like there was any way for me to make this person happy based on based on her emotional situation at the time and I felt like that that wasn't gonna and with the previous episode that she had coming to my office and, and sort of being upset with too much testing and whatever else the situation was I didn't feel there was that level of, of trust and I think that's that's important you know when, when outcomes are great you know hey you may not have the best level of trust and nobody really cares that much but once once that outcome is slightly less than we expect or if patients are, as you mentioned, you know, relying on that as a surrogate for their happiness, that can set into motion a very difficult series of events. And we've seen, we've seen, we've seen that, you know, time and time again. So hard to sometimes read patients, you know, you can sometimes, um, you know, it's a certainly in our form to kind of, you know, get that initial read of what they're expecting, if they've you know, been to a hundred different consultations, or if they have a very type A personality, or they're an engineer type person, they're extremely nervous, no eye contact like this patient, um, you know, agitated with minor little inconveniences or unreasonable expectations. I think we're pretty good about screening for unreasonable expectations. If somebody says, hey, I want to see 2020 all the time, distance near this, that, and that might not be something that realistically, you know, uh, an option. I think we're all comfortable saying, you know, look, we can't really do that. But I think the problem and the crux of, I think this discussion is that when we can deliver, we think everything that the patient kind of wants, but yet there's still something that's not quite right. That's how, that's, that, I think that's the difficult part. And I think that that's what this deserves this discussion. So one other thing
0: I'd like to get your input on, uh, I'll, I'll kind of tell you what we do at our office. Um, we ha- have realized that sometimes patients treat the doctor very differently than they treat the front office staff, the technicians, the checkout people. And so we've had conversations with our entire office to say we collectively have to own this potential problem. And we as doctors, we only see a snippet of their visit and sometimes patients you know because of our position they may defer and be a little bit nicer to us but also as a leader in an office we have to be we have to protect our staff i'm very protective of my staff if someone is rude to my staff whether that's the front office person the you know someone sweeping the floors to you know the anesthesia staff anybody we really have this sort of single black ball um, red flag that goes up and our techs will tell us be you know, be careful. This, this patient is, has been has been very demanding, or they've been rude, or they've been saying things that you know are are off color. And you know, I have had conversations with patients who, again, would potentially be great candidates for multifocal lens, cataract surgery, LASIK, refractive lens exchange, but based on how they treat my staff, it gives me another insight into all right this patient is highly demanding. And if something doesn't go quite right, I'm going to be on the other end of that ire uh, postoperatively. And, and I'd like to know what you think about that as, as the first question. And the second, how do you handle that conversation when, when you do decide to um, forego surgery? What's your, what's, do you have a, a, a typical response or go either direction you want with that?
1: So I think that your point is very valid and something that we don't think about because we're so, again, focused on walking into the patient, trying to develop that physician-patient relationship. We're trying to not treat the patient as a cornea or a, or a lens or anything else, but we're focused on objective findings. And we're trying within that several minutes that we have to really make a connection, figure out what's going on, and, and tell them, hey, we can help you. And we sometimes lose the forest for the trees, if you will, when patients have been complaining to the front desk at, hey, I don't like the music in your waiting room or how much longer is it going to be or or if they're downright rude. And we definitely do not try to to um, coddle these patients when they're rude to the staff. I mean, we make it a point that, you know, we tell them, look, we won't tolerate this behavior. We do not tolerate disrespect. I mean, this has to be a mutual, you know, respect if we're going to, develop a relationship and, and and try to help you in the future. So I think it's very, very important to, to be on the side of your staff. I commend you for that. We, we obviously try to do that as much as we can as well. And, and having that infrastructure where you can be warned sort of before you see the patient, or maybe soon after, whatever the case may be, where, um, hey, the front desk flags the patient's uh, visit and said, hey, this patient was very rude or off color, or they were very, you know, demeaning to the staff or the technicians who have potentially a little bit more of a uh, connection with them during during the examination. I think those are great great things to sort of discuss with your staff and say we are there for you we are on your side we're all in this together actually and we want to make the patient experience great obviously but if there are certain things that are preventing that on the patient side please let us know because that lets us understand how they deal with seemingly minor issues and if they are not able to deal with those minor issues we're going to have a problem, potentially, even if there's not a major issue, which hopefully there isn't, but even if there are minor issues following the surgery, I think that we are all going to be, you know, dealing with that. And I've always said, um, even in my early career, is that, look, I don't need to, um, you know, make, you know, a billion dollars and operate on every single patient that walks through the door. I want to, I want to have happy patients and I want to have patients that we can do good for. And if I don't think we can do good for them, whether it's from a physical standpoint or whether it's from this more, intangible psychosocial concept then I think we need to nip that in the bud and 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 tell the patient somehow now how do you discuss that with the patient well I certainly think that you know it, my style is typically as as a lot of us I think are is to probably under promise you know and over deliver so we kind of downplay the the potential you know benefits in terms of acuity or this or that and and independence from glasses of course and I think if patients still have you know issues that's a good way to sort of let them down easily and say, look, I think, I know you want to see Mrs. Jones, uh, you know, distance and reading and, and, and then also be able to see, you know, sheet music, you know, uh, 24 inches away, but, but we don't have a lens that that can do that at this time. Maybe we ought to, you know, revisit this, or if they have a LASIK uh, appointment, you might want to say, well, you know, your cornea is a little bit on the thin side, or, or there may be some way to kind of couch it and say that maybe this is not the ideal situation for you in terms of what we can sort of deliver i would very i would almost never you know tell the patient that i don't think you can handle you know um uh, the results from a psychosocial standpoint i don't think that that would be an appropriate way to discuss it with patients but i think there's enough there's enough information out there what i told this particular patient if i recall is that i think that there was some uh, discussion that she had being in her early to mid fifties, uh, low to moderate myop, I think it was, I can't remember the number, but there was some issue where, um, she had indicated that she still wanted to maintain near vision for some other task. And so the way I, I couched it for her and I gave her sort of the benefit of the doubt is that I said, look, I think that, you know, LASIK may not be the best solution for you in terms of being able to deliver, you know, vision for distance as well as some more near vision related tasks. And maybe we ought to wait a year or two, let things kind of stabilize, and then maybe there may be options in in the refractive lens uh, exchange arena that we can kind of explore. There's always new lens implants that are coming out, and we have potential for you know vision that might be able to uh, be accomplished with one procedure where we can accomplish multiple goals and tasks and so on and so forth. So that's kind of how I approached it with this patient, and, and I don't think that there was anything you know in that that she took. Um, to, to, from me that it was in, in any way condescending or demeaning or that I didn't want to treat her. And that's certainly something that we want to uh, not come across as if we are if we are uh, trying to let the patients down easily. Now, again, if they have been rude to the staff or been obviously in, in, in threatening violence, we've had that happen as well too sometimes. You know, I think those are patients that I certainly think that we have to sort of have a firm hand and say, look, I don't believe that, you know, we uh, are the right practice or you. I don't believe that we can uh, you know, deliver on, on what, uh, you know, what your expectations are. And I, and I think that it'd be best in your best interest to to find another doctor and we'll help you find a, a doctor who might be able to take care of you. So I think that that's something that it's really, as you've pointed out, being on the on the side of your staff goes a long way. You've got to deal with, you know, your staff for a lot longer than you have to deal with, you know, one patient.
0: Yeah, I think I think these are all excellent points. We totally agree on this and and I think that the LASIK practices that have been dealing with these patients for longer maybe have an advantage in the refractive cataract arena to sort of have their antennas up or radar out, however you want to say it, for these higher demanding patients. For people who are in just sort of dabbling in refractive cataract surgery, um, these patients can show up and really throw a wrench in the system, especially to a practice that's used to doing sort of bread and butter um, general ophthalmology. And I think it's these patients potentially that have spoiled the punch for a lot of good technologies that, you know, in the right patient, the doctors may have had a different experience and have been more of an advocate for. But instead, they've sort of been once bitten, twice shy. Would you sort of? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, I, I give um, you know talks as you do to um, various different levels of ophthalmologists, whether they are a refractive cataract practice or the cataract surgeon who's dabbling in sort of a one-off, you know, toric IOL or premium IOL for the first time. And, and it really is a huge, huge advantage to come from a refractive background. And as I said, I was kind of thrown into the fire in 1998 when it was, you know, 100% LASIK and we were doing a, a million procedures, so to speak, because it was such a new thing and everyone was interested in it. So we really kind of had a trial by fire in terms of weeding things out. I think the practices that we're used to just doing your bread and butter cataracts and still leaving a lot of astigmatism on the table um, and, and not really having patients upset about it are in that same boat as sort of a new surgeon coming out. They're trying this new technology. They want to do everything they can to make it perfect for the patient. And sometimes that means maybe, you know, uh, biting off a little more than you can chew. And and I think that's kind of the same situation that we deal with when we are kind of starting out in practice. So I always tell them, look, you really want to take, take a situation where until you kind of get your feet wet, not only in terms of how to deliver outstanding results from uh, a surgical standpoint, you know, pre-op testing and surgical, uh, meticulous technique and post-op management, but also some of these more subtle arts of, of how to read a patient and how to figure out What's going to make them happy and what's going to make them tick? I I think that you definitely have to um, go slow, and and I think that would some that'd be something that I would recommend is that when you are starting out either in your practice for the first time or trying something new, as as in premium lenses or refractive type cataract or other technology, is to um, go slow and kind of find those patients who are going to be sort of your your home runs and and you know the really low-hanging fruit is, is where you want to start off with, not only to help hone your skills on the surgical side, but also to hone them in sort of analyzing these patients and kind of seeing where they're coming from and getting a sense of what's going to make them happy. Because that's what we're in the business of, is making patients happy. We're not in the business necessarily of making patients 2020 or 2015. We're making them happy in terms of how they perceive their Uh, vision, helping them throughout their lives. And that's been the great blessing of being involved in in refractive and and corneal and cataract surgery over the last 20 years. But with it comes, you know, certainly a a high percentage of of cases where we have to take a step back, evaluate the big picture and ask ourselves, are we doing this to make us happy or are we doing this to make them happy and can we we successfully uh, do that?
0: Parag, those are some great pearls. Um, I know this is going to be incredibly valuable to a lot of folks listening. Um, I'm sure almost everyone will have a, a patient or two that comes to mind when they think of this. And I just think it's a great reminder that there, there's more to the picture than just the topography. There's more to the picture than which lens you're going to put in the eye, for example. It really requires this whole, this holistic approach uh, to, the, to the refractive Uh, Patient, And I appreciate you sharing some pearls today.
1: Gary, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me to come on. Uh, uh, I've heard some of your podcasts and I'm very impressed and keep doing a great job. Awesome. Let's talk again soon. Okay, bud. All right, Gary. Take care.
0: It's never easy, but it is important to remember that you do not have to perform surgery on every patient. We are, as Parag said, in the business of making patients happy. At the end of the day, patients don't care whether they're 2015 or 2020. They know how they feel, and if we've made them feel better, then we have succeeded. But a perfect visual outcome does not guarantee happiness. The best we can do is take a holistic approach to patient care, pay close attention to the cues outlined by Parag, and trust our gut when we sense something is off. With that, thanks for listening to the 50th episode of Off the Grid. For more episodes like this, visit itube.net slash podcasts. Until next time. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.